Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. This is Henry Lopez. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today is Zach Hurley. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks, Henry. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I, I have quite a few uh, people that I've chatted with, my clients and obviously listeners as well, that uh, aspire to, to launch their own fashion business. So this is a, <laughs> going to be a great conversation, uh, including my daughter. Uh, so the, the thing is, if you have an idea for a garment or a clothing item, but you're stuck with how to get it designed and made without a big significant investment, without having to go overseas, without all of the risk that comes with that, that's what Zach is going to share with us today. He's with me today to share his personal entrepreneur story, very interesting story of how he got to where he is today, and then how he helps fashion entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. If you want to receive more information about the Howa business, including link, links to the show notes page and to schedule a free coaching consultation with me, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996. So Zach Hurley is an entrepreneur and the CEO and co-founder of Indie Source. Indie Source is an apparel manufacturer and fashion consultancy that is redefining the way clothing is developed, produced, and distributed in the United States. He helps fashion entrepreneurs bring their visions out from the depths of their creative minds, as Zach says, <laughs> into the market and push them outside their comfort zone to get what they want in life. Uh, they've supported IndieSource and, and Zach has supported hundreds of brands and would love to help you finally make your fashion line happen. Zach lives in Los Angeles, California area. So once again, Zach Hurley, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. Did a lot of research, fascinated with the topic and everything that you're doing, but I'd like to understand more about your journey. If I've got the research right, you early on did some teaching, you were in sales, just tell me briefly about your, your early career. Yeah, I mean, my early career was pretty short-lived, I mean, in terms of the, the typical corporate uh, side of things. You know, I've had many jobs sort of growing up. I studied international business marketing, um, language, and, you know, always sort of was interested in things that were entrepreneurial, although at the time that wasn't really known or cool or talked about, and, and so I didn't know it was an option for quite some time. Um, yeah, I mean, I... Uh, I was in a sales job for, for a time and then ultimately, uh, you know, realized that entrepreneurship was a viable option and that sort of changed my whole life. Why, why did you uh, feel or have the impression or were told that, that it wasn't an option? Because you're not well, that old, right? I hope you're in your uh, late 20s uh, at the most. <laughs> I'm in my early 30s. Early and, 30s. Okay. And, pretty young. And I so. think... You know, I think it, it, and it may be that other areas are of the country and other parts of the world are, are different, but I just remember sort of growing up, um, learning about um, just a certain amount of work you need to put in, in terms of this like uh, corporate side of things. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it's just not necessarily true. So you have different sort of conflicting views that you get. You get some people that are saying, hey, you have to go this path. And then you start to realize that that there are all these other paths you can take mm -hmm. and that opens the door for unlimited possibilities. Yeah. Um, so did, did you aspire when you were younger to own your own business? Was that something that was even? Yes, I did. I did. Okay. Yeah. And the reason was because my parents own their own companies. My grandparents are entrepreneurs 
And I remember really looking up to that because I know they, they had a lot of control of their life and what they did and how they spent their time. And so, you know, I did have that sort of input, but at the same time, you know, your, your peers and your school and the, the other forces around you also have a big impression. So I think at the same time that I was seeing them be successful, I was also hearing all of these other things as you, you go through school and they're like, well, it's, it's so you can get into college and so you can get a job and so you can do this. And so those things get convoluted a bit when you're young and leave you in a place where you're sort of questioning, okay, well, what can I do and when? Mm -hmm. So did you, growing up, did you, do you feel like you saw the negative side of being a business owner? That, that often happens where you, you only hear your parents dealing with the headaches or the problems. Was that a part of why you felt like, well, maybe I got to go get ready to be a business owner? No, I, I don't think that that it was necessarily negativity. In fact, I think that that was that was more like the the thing that that helped push me to do it. I think the rest of the world is pushing you, or at least when I was growing up, was pushing you not to do it. Was pushing you to to get a job, to go corporate, to sort of like put in your time, put in ten years, and it, you know, I, I think it took that plus a, a couple of really inspirational books and people that I met that that made me realize, oh wait a second, you know, I, I can actually do this. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that because it's, it's such a challenge. There's, there's no doubt the system, certainly our educational system, it really is, to put it bluntly, about indoctrinating us into becoming employees, right? Yeah, exactly. That it's the, the infrastructure drives you towards that, whether you like it or not. So from a psychological perspective, I think a lot of people are going through school, coming out of it, getting into the job market, and trying kind of unsure. And I, it's interesting because a lot of times I'll go speak at colleges and universities um, particularly a lot of fashion schools. And I mean, a vast majority of people just have no idea what they're going to do next. You know, they, they're really unsure. And so I think that's indicative of just the mixed signals that they get throughout the process. So what advice do you give them then on that point? Because you're, I mean, obviously you're spot on, you're speaking to these kids. I just had a daughter graduate from university. It's such a pressure that they're under to have figured out their life, right? It's so funny. Exactly. I mean, the advice that I give, and I think I'm lucky, like you said, I'm still very young and I started this company when I was young too. So I, it's not like I started late or, uh, or anything, but um, what I can tell them, and what I always do is, is that when you're young, you want to basically get as much information and, and experience as you can, not like fluffy, fake resume experience. I mean, like actual business experience. And for some people, that means you should right now go and start a business because that will be the best way for you to fail a million times, learn, and ultimately be like the most experienced, best version of yourself. And for other people, that means go out there, basically work for somebody who you really admire in the thing you're most passionate about and like, you know, for free in some cases, to be able to really get that experience directly from them. Um, what I advise against is, well, just get whatever job you can get. Just try to find something that'll you know, pay your bills or just get you in the door. And then you know, maybe down the road, something else can happen. That's sort of the thing that I think is a losing combination. Yeah, great advice. And I, I think the other thing I would add to that, Zach, I'm sure you agree with is, but by all means, do not, do not in your early twenties, accept it as your fate that, well, I'm just going to have this miserable job forever. That's, that's horrible, right? If it's bad, change it. If it's change not it. what you want it to do, change it. Yeah, exactly. 
you talk a lot, uh, or you've talked a lot in my research, I was, you talk a lot about uh, people uh, that are limiting, they limit themselves. I think it was in one of the videos, you've got quite a few videos, numerous videos on, on your uh, YouTube channel. Great yep. stuff, very inspirational stuff. Uh, this outlook that you have, this positive outlook, as I, as I kind of frame it, this mindset, has that always been you? I think so. I mean, <laughs> maybe not in the beginning. I think I was a pretty shy little kid, but I think my parents and anybody that knows me would would tell you that, you know, as I, you know, teenager and on, I sort of uh, learned the boundaries of what you can and can't do. And I think part of that comes from my family. You know, I mean, I think I had a, my grandma, for example, was a boundary pusher. She always taught me to like, you know, ask for forgiveness. She always was pushing me to do things that are outside of like the rules. She said, the rules are made up. Just, just do it and then ask for forgiveness. So I had certain role models that sort of opened my eyes to looking at things differently. And then I think I just had sort of success and excitement around these kinds of things growing up and then, you know, into my 20s, actually starting businesses. And, and, and ultimately, what I've realized um, throughout the process of talking to business owners, and mind you, you know, when I was also working in a corporate job, that job was speaking to hundreds of business owners too. So I was consulting and working with, you know, business owners and learning and listening to their problems. So I had spoken to hundreds of business owners in different areas. And it's just like, when you have that repetitive conversation over and over and over again, you start to realize what the common themes are. Mm -hmm. And the common themes are usually, they pop up at different parts of the process. And usually the first part in terms of limiting beliefs is just, that they get stuck in this phase of um, research, not sure if they can do something, questioning, and ultimately just complete inaction. And that the reason that that's so important is because that's actually where the vast majority of people like live and stay. They don't yeah. go any further than that. Right. They live in like the the world of questioning: could this work? Research, and they they don't really check to see if this is a viable thing. And so. Having now done that and helped so many brands do it, it's like, oh yeah, you should have that aha moment where it's like, well, it just takes doing it and then you pivot and then you pivot and then you pivot until you get it right. And what, what have you found holds people back from taking that first action step from, from doing something? What, have you found some common themes there as well as to what it is that holds them back really? I think one is they complicate things by thinking they need to, to do everything. And I've done this too, for sure. So oh, I have to figure out how production works. I have to figure out how graphic design works. I have to figure out, I have to learn everything. So that's the first thing and the biggest time suck because when you get into the mindset that you have to do everything, you really, you can sink years and years into something that you're never intending on learning. Now, mind you, there, there's benefit. I mean, there's certain things that I know about and I'm like, gosh, I, now I know that. <laughs> I didn't want to know it, but now I know it. But for the most part, in terms of building the most efficient business possible quickly and getting through these initial stages, you want to just really focus on the thing that you do best and try to find other people to enroll in your idea and get them on your team, even if that means giving them a part of the business. Yeah, I love that. Great, great observation. I think the other thing in my experience, Zach, that, that at the end, I mean, what you're sharing is what I've seen as well. I think we hide behind that. No, I still don't know enough. No, I got to learn about this part of it or that part of it. And like you said, you, that, that's what keeps you paralyzed. But I think we hide behind it because I think part of it 
and see what you think is that we're afraid of the embarrassment of failing. Just like we've been indoctrinated to be employees, we've been as part of that, in my opinion, this is my personal opinion, indoctrinated that while everybody tells us that failure is good, that's not really the case when we're an employee. Failure is not good. Right. And I think we right. have that baggage and that keeps us from actually doing it because we're afraid to fail. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think in practice, though, when you're starting your own company, failure doesn't happen at, in an instant. You know, it's, it just doesn't actually work like that in practice. It's not like, oh, I failed, like I dropped it and now it's done. It, it's usually many different failures over time. And so I think just knowing that, first of all, can allow people to take a deep breath and relax and realize like, okay, there's going to be something that I learn isn't working. I don't have to label that failure. That just means I have to actually look at it and, and sort of change the way I'm approaching something to see what really does work. Yeah, great point. All right, so what leads then to IndieSource? Because in doing the, the research, it's not like you had a background in fashion. You don't even, that wasn't even necessarily a, you know, quote, no, quote, no, fashion. Exactly. So, so tell us the story <laughs> of how this came about. So, yeah, I mean, the quick version is that um, in college, my buddy Jesse and I, who was my co-founder, we started a fraternity together. And, the, you know, this was a non-fraternity fraternity. And the short version is it took us four years to get this fraternity on campus. We worked our butts off. And I would say this was a little uh, entrepreneurial venture, one that we made no money, but one that was sort of like a legacy thing. And um, this guy became a very good friend of mine. And, you know, to this day, the fraternity is still on campus. And um, so basically, a couple of years go by after, after you graduate, and we stay in touch. And he calls me and says, Zach, I want you to, um, you know, move out west to California. We're going to start a business. And obviously, like, I, you know, I was working at the time, but he knew how much, you know, I was interested in, you know, being an entrepreneur. We were both reading uh, Tim Ferriss's book which I know many people have read for our work week. Um, and so sort of just jamming out on that and just having just these aha moments constantly about what, what it means to be a business owner, um, liberation, and how you can gain sort of independence from location. That was a major uh, opportunity for us and, and sort of like helped us to realize that we could really do anything. And, um, you know, so, so the step one was actually that we wanted to start something together. Step so at two that was, point, at that point, did he have an idea he was bringing to you or he just had the idea of let's do something? So he, he had an idea through his friend that was uh, actually studying in Peru and his buddy had a, uh, a factory relationship. And there's this factory owner that, that was this very eccentric designer and he you know, basically had a factory that was not being used, but he had all this, this really, really great menswear fashion. He was trying to get into the United States, but he had no connection to that market. And so, you know, he had started this business around sort of bringing these products into the U.S. and selling, um, selling product into different stores. And so I thought that there was something there just because I, you know, I had studied international business. I loved, you know, working in, different cultures. And so I just felt that there was something there. I didn't know yet. I'm just sort of, and this is another piece of advice. I'm just sort of like, I'm just sort of digging. I'm just sort of keeping my, I'm just sort of like going through and figuring out, well, what, what's, what's going on here. And so I think part of the reason that I was even able to be in that position was because yes, we were like, you know what, we want to do something for ourselves and we want to see what that looks like. Yeah. And sort of fast forward a little bit, we were, uh, you know, 
working in a trade show in Vegas, you know, helping this guy to sell his product into the U.S. market. And we started to sort of realize uh, what was going on in the apparel industry. And so you'd go down the rows of the different aisles in, in this uh, trade show. It's a big fashion trade show. And we started talking to all these different people that were selling the products. And it was just like all the same stuff. And at this point, we had been helping this guy to sell his product in the market. It's very, very high quality Pima cotton, really, really custom stuff. And we realized that everybody was printing on blanks or they were using sort of like bad quality stuff and everything looked very similar. And we started asking the questions about why it was that they were doing this. And we, th that's where we started to learn about the problems in the industry. Oh, well, you know, the minimums are extremely high. Oh, there's uh, issues with producing overseas. You know, we have gotten product that's shipped to us and is wrong. Oh, we couldn't get samples made. It's make so many units. So all these kinds of things sort of like opened up the hood to the apparel industry. And that was when we sort of realized, okay, there's something here that's really interesting. Uh, but we, we, we sort of, that was when we first got into it. And from there, you know, obviously a lot more questions were answered. And this is so 2011 is, is when you decide, all right, let's, let's start this thing called Indie Source. Exactly. At and in the, the beginning, time, all was we there did, anybody doing this? Of course. I mean, there's other manufacturers and people that do, that help bring products to life. And in the beginning, really all we were, were was like an agent. We were just sort of like bringing products, uh, you know, manufacturing stuff overseas and then helping people to sort of curate what they wanted and bring it, bring it to the United States. And one of the first big aha moments that happened was that we started getting calls from people and fashion entrepreneurs around the country that were saying, you know, I want to make this, you know, this spe special product and I'm having trouble getting it created. And whenever I go to these other manufacturers and say, oh, I have to make a thousand units of it, but I don't even have a sample yet. I don't even have my idea created. I don't have uh, patterns. I don't have material. I really just need help from the beginning stages. And at that point, we realized that there was a big gap in the industry, which was around product development. And actually taking somebody's idea from concept from the early part where they have something in their head and helping them to bring it to life so they have working prototypes, they have all of the supply chain set up so that then they can move into actually having inventory that they sell. And certainly back then, I can't imagine there were too many people doing that. No, there really aren't. And I think the reason that there weren't because there was no need and the reason that there was so much demand during that time was because that was when direct consumer was really starting to blow up. I see. Um, I see. Yeah. So Shopify was, you know, sort of scaling out and a lot of people were able to build sites and reach their customers directly. Yeah. It had and began to completely change the, the fashion, the garment industry and turned it upside down. Really, Exactly. And so that's the big opportunity. The opportunity is that all around the world, there are individuals and entrepreneurs that have ideas for products and things that they want to solve that usually have a lot to do with something in their life. They're not being served in the market or there's some product that they want to make that would help them functionally or otherwise. Yeah. And, and there's not- They really can reach that market very easily because of this thing called the internet versus before you would have had to try to get into a big box store. Somewhere. Right, exactly. You'd have to have a million dollars invested and you'd have to- hire all these salespeople and you'd have to do all these things. And so now we're, these entrepreneurs are thinking, okay, well, now there's a direct way that I could sell, I could distribute. And that's great. But that doesn't solve for the product side yeah. and getting it created. And, and so what's interesting is, is- You guys were not attached to 
the legacy, because often then what you would do is try to, when you still can, contact those those manufacturers. Certainly there are marketplaces like Alibaba that facilitate that connection, but it's still, you don't know what you're doing. You're dealing with a foreign entity, all of that. You guys weren't stuck to having to sell that because that's where you came from. You had the flexibility to say, wait a second, we need to focus on this side of it. Exactly. And there was nothing really set up for all of these people that were diving in and needed to figure that out. And the Alibaba, you know, all they do is connect you to factories. Right, that's, there's all, no that's protection. all it is. Yeah. There's no protection there. There's no process around it. It's just like, here you go, talk to somebody. They may or may not be okay, right? Um, which is not great. Uh, directories end up being not great because you can't facilitate anything that's going on. And so anyways, I mean, you know, as you look at it, you start to realize, wow, there's so many people out there that have these ideas. And just like you said, I mean, I, I, every day I have a conversation with somebody like not during work that tells me they have an idea for a product. But what, what I sort of realized is like, hmm, but most people don't realize, well, who do you talk to if you have that idea? How do you actually make that product a reality? And I didn't know of any real answer to that. Mm -hmm. Now, when, when did you shift or, or expand from helping people through the process to saying, wait a second, we can actually do this, the, the manufacturing work here in the United States. Yeah. So, I mean, it was I mean, soon after I moved to LA and we really realized the infrastructure, there's millions of yards of fabric and material in Los Angeles. There's an incredible workforce. I think it was just the understanding of what was there, the bones. There's more manufacturing being done in LA than anywhere in the country. Yeah. And um, most people don't realize that. So I think once we understood that and we started to really get our, wrap our, our hands around what was so important to these new entrepreneurs was just getting that first prototype, really getting their hands on that thing. Going back to what we were talking uh, before in terms of being stuck and limiting yourself. Well, if you can get to that point where you have that finished sample in your hand that you've developed the thing that was in your head, you're already, you know, you've gotten past 99% of other people. Yeah. So that was one really critical thing. We wanted to put people in a position to get to that place where then they could take the product, show other people and really get real val validation from the market. All right. I want to walk through the process. Obviously, we don't have the time to, to talk about all of the steps, but at a high level, let me, let me rattle it off and then you'll tell me if I've missed anything. And then I want to dive in on a couple of them. First is this development kickoff meeting. We'll talk about yeah. that in a moment. Then there's, and these are high level steps. There's the sourcing of materials. And again, you're assisting your clients through these steps. There's pattern making. There's then what you just articulated, the, the sample to actually have something physical that now you can validate, you can iterate, you, you have something to work with. Such a huge step, right? From idea to actually having a sample. Then you go through a process of revisions, you transition to production, and, and then you help them beyond that, though, if I've got it right, with how do you market this? How do you go to market and how do you grow your demand for this thing that you've created, this, this garment? Is, is that the process at a high level? Exactly. And, and that last piece was, was very simple. Um, when we call our brands after we've made their product and they haven't sold it, there's usually one of two reasons. Either they spent their money on the wrong thing entirely or they didn't spend any money at all on marketing. And so we brought in the best marketers in fashion specifically and built the same way that we built a team around them in product development. We have a team built around them on marketing in the key areas that brands need to sell product and, you know, 
get an ROI on the, on the investment of the inventory they've made. Yeah. Okay. Just to set the scope here, what types of garments are we typically talking about here? <laughs> Anything you can imagine. So think of any, any material that is, that can be cut and sewn, first of all. So we're talking high-end contemporary right now. There's a lot of, uh, jogger wear, pandemic wear, you know, you're, you're working at home wear kind of stuff. Um, swim, kids, uh, underwear. Uh, I mean, really, the inventions are, are really interesting. So I asked my team, so what are some of the things that we're working on? So there's, uh, so someone's working on a ninja jacket. Um, someone's working on underwear uh, for the LGBT community. Uh, comfy spa clothing, uh, golf. So if you start, you know, if I kind of take a step back and I look at like all of these brands that we're doing, I'm like, okay, this is just reflective of our country. You know, it's kind of fun because it's like, this is, this is like a pulse on, on, on all of the people that exist in America that are saying, Hey, I want to be represented. I, I think that there's more people that want this thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's, it's about, you know, it's mission-based, which is a big focus for us. So building sustainable products. And sometimes it's more uh, niche focused. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm plus size and I'm not getting what I want in the market. So I'm going to create a collection that, that, you know, basically puts clothing on the backs of people that are, that are like me. So it's interesting for me from a psychological perspective to understand what, what does America want to make? And that, I think that just very succinctly, Zach just summarized the huge takeaway here. These things have come together now as we've articulated the internet um, in particular, your, what you're providing for people here to be able to manufacture on a much smaller scale. And now we have the opportunity, like you said, to represent, to provide products. People, there's this huge opportunity for you to provide a product that's tied to your idea, your mission, your whatever it is that you're, your, your tribe and you can do that on a much smaller scale profitably than you could have ever done in the past. Yeah, I think you nailed it. It's, um, you're, you're, you're doing a multiple things at once. So you're creating product for where there's a need, you're limiting waste and an old model of just overproduction for no reason. And you're also cutting out this structure where things need to be shipped all around the planet just to sit on shelves and maybe be sold, but probably discounted and then end up in a landfill. Yep. So there's so many benefits to doing this where we focus on these niche uh, areas, make products as sustainably as possible, closer to where it's being sold. And then ultimately, you know, like have more people's minds on ways to, to solve these problems that are, that are in the industry rather than just like a portfolio company that's making billions of units. Brilliant. This is Henry Lopez with a brief pause to share a special promotion and an offer from Zach Hurley and IndieSource, our new affiliate partner. If you have an idea for a clothing item and you like what you have been hearing so far in this episode about what Zach Hurley and his company IndieSource have to offer fashion entrepreneurs, then you will want to learn more about this special offer. In addition to the special price on your IndieSource development kickoff meeting, if you decide to sign a development contract with IndieSource, then I will include a special one-on-one -on -one coaching program with me. You get the garment design, production, and marketing expertise from IndieSource, and I will complement what you learn from them with additional business coaching 
to help you launch your first fashion business. After you finish this episode, if you think what IndieSource has to offer may well be what you need to get your fashion business launched, then visit the show notes page for this episode at thehowabusiness.com for more information about this special offer. It's time to move on from just talking about your fashion idea and take the first step to realizing your dreams. All right, let me focus in on the, the first step, which is this development kickoff meeting. Tell me if I've got this right. If, if, if I understand it, I can pay you, uh, I think this starts at 197, for you to help me with what you call a development kickoff meeting. So a couple of questions, and then I want you to kind of give me at a high level what's what this is. Sure. When I engage you for that, I'm not making any further commitment that to you than that development kickoff meeting or explain what I might be missing there. Exactly. That's it. It's just time with an expert, and it's a opportunity to speak with somebody who really knows what what's going on, who really knows apparel, merchandising, design, and... Um, can help you synthesize the ideas floating around your head and get them into a cohesive plan. What, what, when those meetings go well, when I'm getting the full value out of that, of course, at 197, it's, it's in my opinion, a no-brainer. Right. What do I need to have done, accomplished, ready? To For get the meeting? Most out, yeah, to get most out of that meeting. Where do I need to be in my process? Right, right. So what, what, there's two things. So one is we have a development cheat sheet that people fill out, which just kind of like outlines, okay, what does the collection look like? Style number one is, is a hoodie. Style number two is leggings. Style number three is this. So you're sort of like creating a rough idea of the collection itself. And then underneath that, you're plugging in some, some knowns. So I know I, I think that I want to retail it at this price point. I'm looking for fabric that feels like this, but I don't know what it's called. So I'm going to give you a swatch. And so you're, you're taking something that's amorphous and giving it clarity. Um, so the first thing is just filling out this document. And the second thing is reference samples. So again, if I were just working with trained fashion designers, a lot of times they would send me measurements, right? But I'm not. I'm working with people that didn't go to fashion school at all often, and they want to build products. And so the best way for them to communicate things that they want or things that they like or don't like is to find reference samples in the market that communicate maybe a fabric that they like, maybe a fit, maybe a, a special detail of sewing. And they find these things in the market and then those pieces we pull from. It gives us information on the, the type of fit and measurements. It gives us information on the fabric we would need to countersource and find in the market. It tells us a lot about what they want. And it sort of um, allows them as non-fashion professionals to communicate the end result that they're looking for. So they bring reference samples, they fill out this sheet, and that's pretty much what they need to have a really effective meeting. Okay. A right. lot of these are in their closet. You know, these are things that they have or they see at right. the store or, you know, it could be really anything. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then, then after that, if that goes well and I feel like, okay, I'm ready to take the next steps, you know, sourcing of materials, the pattern making, the sample making, what does the investment there look like? So as you can imagine, it's pretty big range because we're, we're making t-shirts to jackets to also pillowcases and other things, right? And, and, and interesting inventions for animals. <laughs> <laughs> so it can range, but, but I do like to give people a, a perspective. Most of the time on average, when we're, we're talking to all of the development, the whole development process is about $2,000 per style that they're making. Per style, define that for me because I'm not a fashion person. Style would be, so a jacket would be a style, okay. 
um, a button down shirt would be a style, a pair of leggings would be a style, a t-shirt would be a style. So it's the unique block or the unique shape that, that we're creating. And so usually a style, you know, you can start with three, four, five, six. Some people are doing, you know, 10 to 20 styles. So it really depends on the business, what they're going to be selling. So if you imagine looking at on a, a website and you see somebody has three different products, but those products have different colors and sizes, it's just three styles. Yeah. And then it's broken down into colors and sizes for the customers to choose. All right. Thanks for sharing that. So in that range, again, it varies because it depends on what you're making. Uh, but about $2,000 per style, there was that 197 for that initial kickoff meeting. Then you will provide them a quote, depending on once they're ready, what production run they're looking to do for their first production run. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. We, we really work backwards on that. And it's important because the, the, the point in time where you have the most control over your financials in terms of your, you know, the price of your product is in the beginning, before you started. So what we really wanna do with our brand is to get clarity on what their uh, non-negotiables are, what their priorities are. So that might be that need, they need to manufacture this product at $25, or it might be that they wanna make 300 units. They can't make any more than that. Uh, it could be that they have certain fabrics that are really important. And so we figure out what those priorities are and we, figure out what they're going to sell it for. And we figure out the margin that they need to be at to be able to make a profit. And so we create a target manufacturing price point in the very beginning of the process so that during that process, we know what we're working towards. And then from there, you know, you give yourself a budget for material, a budget for labor and um, work towards not just finishing the product, but also completing the product with, you know, at that price point that you needed to be at. Yeah. You have a great video on the YouTube channel, I think is where I saw it, where you break down kind of the numbers on it. Because again, a lot of people who come to this don't even have that basic understanding of how do I break down these numbers? And it's a great sure. video. And, and on there, you think you had a production run of as low as 300. So that's the other advantage that you're offering. Again, as we chatted about at the outset, I don't have to go do a multi-thousand unit run you can do as small as a 300 unit run perhaps. Yes, exactly. And you can do that in, in different colors and different sizes. So when you look at per skew, you're just looking at, you know, 25, 30 per skew, um, which you don't really want much less than that because you're, you, you got to pay to get, you know, get, get the marketing up, get the photography. So if you have such a too small in terms of quantity, then you're just, uh, you're out of stock before you start. Yeah. Okay. Then, so let's say then I, I, I had you do this, this initial run how is it that you're providing then the ongoing marketing help? Is that, um, I'm just trying to understand how you're making money at that because you can't be providing this just open-ended. How does that work? How do I get that help from you and for what period of time, let's say? Yeah, so it, the, the, the marketing side runs similar to the you know, marketing agency, only most marketing agencies are, are working with you and then also selling rooftops and selling you know, other products that have nothing to do with fashion. Um, whereas we focus only on fashion and the way that we operate that is it's sort of, it overlays during the development and production process. So what that looks like is we're building out Shopify site as samples are being completed. We're doing photo shoot, um, for the, the, the products that you have flat lays and with models. And then we're also helping to run Instagram, Facebook ads and drive traffic to your site so that this product that you just invested this money in can be sold. 
And but so, this are, these are separate fee-based services that you're offering? Yes. Okay. Okay. Got it. But and, what we're able I, to I do... Think those are competitive with what I would pay if I were to hire some other marketing agency. They're actually much more competitive. So I don't really... This is... This is if we come back to why we're doing this, we're doing this because we want reorders. We want our brands to sell through their product and we want them to come back and order more. So we're really not focused on making, making much money on the marketing side. This is designed to make them, help them to sell through successful, their product. Yeah, be right? successful and, and come so, back and order another, another Exactly. Brand. So we're actually much, much, much more competitive in terms of pricing than any other agency because of that. Um, because our focus is really on getting them to a reorder rather than just like creating a whole agency. Sure. Uh, and of like course, hyper-focused, you, you know how to market this stuff. So um, great. Got it. What are, um, what's the typical time frame from, you know, I've, I had that initial development kicking kickoff meeting to um, selling my two or three styles on my website. Yeah, it can vary hugely. And I mean, hugely. So and it depends on the processes that the uh, entrepreneur decides on, right? So if you imagine on one hand, you have someone who's choosing a, a t-shirt that they need to be produced and they find fabric that's just available in the market. And so it's already dyed. And so it just simply needs to be cut and sewn and that's it. Maybe they're selling that. Whereas uh, on the other hand, you have some people that are doing a lot of custom, custom work. Maybe it's a custom elastic waistband Maybe it's uh, specialized printing and a lot of things that really take significant more time. So in any range, and the reason I ask this question in part, Zach, is what I find a lot of times is, is that people are unrealistic about how much time it takes to get there. And that that's the investment. That's, that's part of what we have to do as entrepreneurs is get through this time. We got to fight through it and have the discipline to get out at the end of it. And it doesn't always happen overnight. So what do you, what guidance do you give realistically to someone for the typical types of garments that you're making? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important aspect because they're, they're really involved in the process, if that makes sense. So when we get started, they need to, they need to approve samples of all of the materials, right? They need to um, do fittings with us. They, they often come in and try on the clothing and do a fitting with our pattern maker. And they say, all right, a little bit shorter here, a little bit longer here. Let's change this. Let's change that. So, you know, I think it's a delicate balance because on one hand, yes, we have the ability to do things fast because we're domestic. Right. And so that's great. And in certain times we can be really, really quick when the pandemic hit in literally a week, we had we were making masks and we sold hundreds of thousands of them directly on our site because we have the ability to be fast and, and mobile and agile. But if we're working on somebody's project, right? It's their baby, it's their creation. You don't want to rush through that. You want to be able to make sure that you're creating the product that you, you do envision and then get it to market. And I don't mean waste time, like a lot of time, but you want to make sure that you've gone through the steps, you've made the changes that you want, and then you put it out and you test and you see what the market has to, to tell you. All right, so you're still not giving me a time frame. Uh, a time frame can be uh, can be two months to four months on the development side, sometimes longer. Again, uh, and then on the production, once you have your markers and your material in hand, then it can be another couple, like two to three months. Okay, I appreciate that. And, sure. and I think if I'm hearing correctly, 
when you see this done successfully, it's the people who, who will really take that, that sample, that sample stage, that marketing, not the marketing, the, uh, the, the testing phase, you know, I've got a sample, I've got maybe a first run, and then I iterate to see what my market really is going to respond to. That's what really can lead to some success with this. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, you have the control, right? So if you develop something overseas and you just get a finished sample and someone knocks something off and they just send you the end result and then you put it out in the market and you realize that you want to change the specific thing, you want to increase it an inch, if you want to do, you know, use a different fabric, you don't have any of the bones of your business set up. You just have the end result. And so one of the things we really focus on is giving people the transparency of where their fabric came from, what their patterns, they get their actual patterns. So we take those, if we need to add an inch, it's very minor. They don't have to start over. And so That's, it's giving, giving them the bones of their business and the assets rather than just hiring somebody to send you a finished product uh, that, you, that you really it can't help you that much. Yeah. That's got to be part of the answer then to one of the questions I had, which is, is it really possible for me to compete with a garment that's manufactured in the US? But Zach, that's got to be part of it right there. That, that flexibility to be that nimble has got to be one of the reasons why I can be competitive with something, in part, be competitive with something made in the U.S. What are your thoughts on that? I think you, you in the beginning, you're focusing on opportunity and viability. And there are certain products that make sense. But either way, um, it depends on your market. And everybody's a little bit different. There, there are other people where, you know, we're supporting them to do some manufacturing, you know, near side in Mexico. And we're facilitating the whole process as well. So at the end of the day, it's more about helping a business to be set up for success rather than just like getting them a, a, like a couple of units um, because that's short-lived. Yeah. All right. We talked about it about at the outset, but uh, I think you, you stated it this way in a couple of the videos. How, how do I get past just an idea? So to, to tell me again, when, when you talk to someone who says, oh, I've got a great idea for this product line or this particular item, what do you tell them as to what they should do next? Uh, if they have an idea for something, well, yeah, I mean, you know, to get them, like you said at the outset, you're, they're stuck. You, there's so many people and I don't care if it's a, a fashion item or whatever it is, mm -hmm. they've got an idea and they get stuck and they stay there, as you said, at the beginning of the conversation, um, what is a piece, another piece of advice for getting past the idea and starting to take some action? Um, another piece of advice is to try to test the market as much as possible early on. Um, and so what that looks like is basically uh, marketing something similar and trying to get feedback. Uh, a lot of people that I'm working with are making like very specific conventions. Some people are in that sort of like the medical industry and they're doing products on that side. Some people are focused on sustainability, some other folks, are, you know, I mean, it just, I, I think that you can really get a sense of the need um, early on by reaching out to, you know, your community online and asking them questions mm -hmm. early on to see what it is that they would actually pay. Would you also, if, if it makes sense, curate similar items and, and use that as a way to early validate that, yeah, I continue to believe there's a market for this idea, concept, whatever it might be. Yeah. It's just testing, testing different ideas with people and really getting feedback that will drive your decision-making and then doing it in small batches. So you don't have yeah. so much inventory risk. That's right. That's right. 
Great stuff, Zach. Thanks for answering all of those questions. We'll start to wrap it up here. I'm always looking for a book recommendation. Is there a book that comes to mind that you would recommend? Well, I mentioned to you, uh, I mean, for, for initial entrepreneurs, I like I said, uh, for our work, work week was just like my aha book for entrepreneurship. The book I'm reading right now, funnily enough, is Traction by Gino, who I know you interviewed. And um, it's just blowing my mind. So I would definitely read it. <laughs> yeah, those are two great books. You said when you had read the four hour work week that it, it, it helped you expand your mind about the possibilities of freedom of location. Yeah. Now you've got this bustling, busy business. What is owning a business doing for you now? What does it do for you personally? Well, I mean, I do, I do still have location independence, which is important. Um, and so, especially during the pandemic, it's been good for me to be able to spend time with my family. Um, right now, it's, it's a, you know, we're a distributed team. So we have people all over the country that are working to, to build this business and support these brands. So what does it look like? I mean, it's, it's sort of evolving at, in the moment. But it's still, you have built the business, even though you've got obviously a physical um, manufacturing location, you have still not allowed that to tie you physically to have to be there 24-7. No. In fact, you know, again, like I, going back to, to me not being the expert, right? I, I don't have a fashion background. Now that I've done this for, for so many years, I really know a lot about apparel. But <laughs> yeah. the idea was never for me to sell myself to other people. Right, right. You know, the idea was for me to find the most talented experts in pattern making, the most talented sourcing specialists and garment experts and quality control people and production folks and to put them together in a way that achieved the goal that was helping these fashion entrepreneurs get to market. So it, it was never about selling myself and still isn't. And so it, what it is about is curating a process and also, you know, one of the things that I am working on is making it experiential because at the end of the day, these people want an experience too. They want to feel like they're a part of something and that they're, you know, they're along for the ride. And so we want to bring them along that journey as they get their time back to spend on uh, ex expanding their business in other ways. So yeah, um, that. All right, we'll wrap it up here. What's one thing, again, you, you want us to take away from this conversation we had, especially from the perspective of, again, the question I, I started with at the outset, how to launch your fashion business. What's one thing you want us to take away from the conversation that we had? Just be in action. Reach out to the people that have done it. There's so many incredible minds in every, any given industry, but particularly in the fashion industry, you have this incredible institutional knowledge and these people that have you know, have literally have decades of experience in creating what it is you're thinking about. So meet with them, learn, you know, some of the process and just enough to, to get going and, um, you know, find uh, support in the areas that you're weak in so that you can jumpstart your business and get it going. And tell us again where you want us to go online to learn more. Yeah, you can, you can find us at indiesource.com, I-N-D-I-E-S-O-U-R-C-E.com. Instagram, indie underscore source, and we're on YouTube, Facebook, and all the other apps. Great stuff. Zach, great conversation. I could go on for another hour. Thanks for indulging all of my questions and sharing so transparently and taking the time to be with me today. Yeah, man. That was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today, again, was Zach Hurley. 
We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowabusiness.com, or just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996 to receive more information. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.